0: of Beyond the Indus. I'm Joe Wallen. And I'm Tushar Shetty. We've got an action-packed episode for you this week. As always, it's been an extremely busy news cycle. Um, so how are you this week, Tush?
1: So Joe, I know it's a bit of a meme that we always talk about the weather in our intros for Beyond the Indus, but I'm actually in a major cyclone at this point, Cyclone Biparjoy, which is currently barreling down the coast of Kwajrat, uh, as well as the Sindh province in Pakistan, and also, uh, on a presumably unrelated note, it's Pride Month. Uh, so, Joe, what have you been doing to celebrate? So, yeah, I've been up in Delhi this past week, so I'm, I'm afraid to say from my side, it's it's been rather quiet when it comes to celebrations. Well, Joe, you might be interested to know that I actually went for a Pride event in Bombay, of all places. And uh, it was quite interesting because it was a sort of a concert that promoted businesses that were run by folks in the queer community in Bombay. And there were a couple of things that really interested me. One of them was that this was very much a corporate-sponsored event. So it's interesting that corporations working in India are promoting and financing these sort of these sort of events. Uh, I think that's a positive sign. But the actual concert was amazing, and I think the peak of this event was a singer who was singing a traditional Assamese love song that's sung by women to the returning men. I believe. And the way he sang it was just, it was absolutely perfect. It showed that even in traditional Indian culture, you can find this sort of easy existence between different sexual identities and gender identities, which I thought was quite interesting. But at the end of that song, he sort of quietened the audience down and he said, guys, I'm from a state called Manipur and Manipur is bleeding right now. So I want you guys to please pay attention to the story. So I think it's a good place to start this podcast this week by talking about the violence ongoing in Manipur. So the violence in Manipur erupted earlier last month between two communities that live in Manipur, the Maites and the Cookies. And the start of this conflict was basically a march that was taken out by the Cookie and other tribal communities against a petition in the Manipur High Court that allowed the Maites, who are the other community living in the state, to access certain special reservations and special grants that were granted to the tribal people living in the hills, Cookies. And this violence, uh, unfortunately, has spiraled out of control with both sides attacking each other and burning down villages to the point where the Indian army has started deploying troops to quell the violence. Unfortunately, this has not worked with increasing reprisals on both sides every time there seems to be even a little abatement of the violence.
0: Uh, And India quotas are uh, are often given to, to marginalized community or marginalized groups within a community or a state. And what we saw in, in Manipur was that the maid states with the majority in the state, were, were seemingly offered quotas or, or benefits that the other travel groups in the state had. Smaller yes. travel groups held protests about this ruling saying they would squeeze them out of government jobs, public sector jobs, university places. Mm-hmm. And then it seems to have really, well, the violence seems to have really picked up from there, uh, from these initial clashes, uh, and doesn't seem to be ebbing. I mean, we had a we had a sort of a brief uh, week or so, it seemed get an easy sort of ceasefire. And then over the last week, we've seen several deadly attacks again, intercommunal deadly attacks again. You know, both sides, you know, both Métais and, and Kuki groups saying that they're not going to attend peace talks held by the Indian government, and, and pointing the fingers at the authorities and saying they're being complicit in the violence. Um, You know, I read a report in Scroll this week, uh, an individual was quoted in there saying, you know, how can our two communities go back to to living side by side? And I think that's the concern for the Indian government, that they need to try and figure out a way
1: that, that that can continue. While we should be clear that the majority of the residents from both communities who live in the state are appealing for peace, they are groups that are orchestrating occasional attacks. And this is leading to reprisals from the other side. So, Joe, One of the things that I found really difficult about the story is as I was following events, it became really hard to discern which side was doing what and what were the reasons for doing so. It just seemed that from the way reporting was coming out that it was a jumble of chaos that had just erupted out of nowhere. And this might lead into maybe a question I wanted to ask you about media representations of events like this, especially violent events between two communities. So I was reading like a bunch of different sources and I was trying to find out why is this happening? What is the cause of this? Being in media, right, you're a veteran journalist, you have some understanding of why media outlets do this, like obscure certain names or not provide certain kinds of information. So what's your opinion on all this? This idea of we shouldn't mention like the communities that have orchestrated so-and-so event or such violence.
0: Yeah, do you know, what I mean? it's really interesting you say that because I I had the exact same thought yesterday when I was like catching up on the news. It's it's mainly in the Indian press it will say like two people killed in Imphal, for example, and then it's kind of like well it doesn't go to detail, and you have to actually hunt around to find out what details are. And I wonder whether there's been some sort of like notes or pressure that's coming from the from Delhi that to try and not stir it up further that they're not going to use like um, you know they're not going to say who's attacking who. Um, So I wonder whether they're trying to kind of like play down like the communal side or or trying to kind of like lower tensions. That would be my thought
1: And that. So yeah, I mean, I I think that's where the question of why do certain media outlets report things a certain way came from? Because it doesn't help me understand what's going on. Well, I think that's the thing, right? It's it's become, uh, you know, it's headline news now, but this hasn't come from nowhere, right? And,
0: you know, the reports that I read and people I speak to all seem to say that, you know, this is a spark, but this has
1: been years and years and years of this tension building. So I mean, what what did you find when, when you were reading around? So in the Northeast, it's been really difficult for the Indian state to control insurgencies because of the remoteness of the land, because of the different tribes that live there. And it's also a factor that Manipur, Nagaland, and Mizoram, they have a lot of tribal populations that stretch across into Bangladesh and to Myanmar especially. So what the government has been doing is that they turn a blind eye to certain activities in order to buy peace. Which, considering the complexity of that situation and its history, I think it's completely understandable to some extent. But apparently that changed in 2021, because that's when the Myanmar coup happened in February. And the junta started cracking down on all the ethnic minorities, Rohingya being one of them, but also the Chin population that live on the border of India. And the Chin population is tribally related to Koki people in uh, in Manipur, as well as the Mizo people in Mizoram. So they started fleeing into Manipur and Mizoram. So there is certainly, there's been evidence of increased numbers of people coming in because there's been crackdown on them. And then your friend's story about the increased amount of drugs comes in because there has been some evidence of increased poppy cultivation. I'm not saying any of this justifies what's happening there, but it helped explain why the situation has become increasingly destabilized. I don't know, what do you think?
0: yeah absolutely so we did a story a couple of a couple of years ago from from assam where we actually went out with the the assam police several days on drugs and and weapons raids with them Um, and the police are warning this is I think about 18 months ago that there was a massive influx of of drugs and weapons coming from Myanmar through India's northeast through Mizoram through Manipur through Nagaland, Assam and then to the rest of the country the rest of India so it doesn't you know these reports don't surprise me the concern of the police at the time was that militia groups in the northeast of India were making a huge amount of money from this uh, as part of the trade sort of in between Myanmar and the rest of India and that this would have massive implications on safety and security in the northeast. And obviously this happened kind of during COVID times, so eyes or elsewhere. I think we're, we're seeing some of the impacts of that now. You know, I think, I think it's, it's complicated as well. There are allegations that you know, members of the Indian Army are sympathetic towards the, the tribes in Manipur, whereas the, the police and the authorities and the state's chief minister are sympathetic towards, towards the
1: Maiti and those, those who are, are living more in the cities and on the plains. Yeah, yeah, it does complicate things. And I think there was a report in the print from, I think, last year, which uh, was talking about the process that they underwent to acquire an Aadhaar card, which is the identity card that, you know, Indian citizens have. So um, the village council backs your application for the Aadhaar. So all you needed is a phone number to get the Aadhaar card. And then basically you're identified as an Indian citizen. This is what led the chief minister of Manipur, Biren Singh, to threaten to de-recognize some villages out there. Yeah, so it's A, the drug problem, but it's also if you have more people from, let's say, a different ethnicity in, in a place that's known for like inter-ethnic conflict, then they also acquire more power democratically in the ballot box. I can see why that could lead to more tension on the Mathia side. I think definitely definitely interesting and important to mention you know the point
0: you say about people coming into into the state from outside and it driving this drugs trade because i hope we did a piece from it was like Mizoram, assam and it was just like the increase in drug trafficking seizures production in northeast india the last two years had like skyrocketed you know um but then i need to kind of qualify that by saying that you know reporting is limited in the in the area that uh, because it is you know not one international publication is allowed into Manipur, and that's certainly been the case since I've been in India in 2019. You look at even the coverage in the Indian media, there's very few outlets that seem to have anyone on the ground. The pieces from In Scroll were quite standout because they, they were really on the front lines, as it were. It'd be, it'd be impossible, I think, to do the podcast this week uh, without talking about the horrific train crash uh, in Odisha's uh, Balasore district. Now the death toll has increased to about 288, and around 100 people are said to still be still be injured. Immediately, it led to a lot of a lot of criticism um, about the country's train network, uh, which has rapidly rapidly expanded. Um, it's been about 29 billion dollars announced this year for India's railway network in the budget, which is a 50 percent increase on last year. So by 2030, the Indian government would like 45 percent of its rail network to be to be transporting freight, so not just passengers um so it is it, there was you know massive hope on the network being a, a huge driver of, of economic growth and you know safety records have massively improved you know in 1980 there were 2.2 accidents per million kilometers traveled and this has improved to 0.05 in 2019 so so it is obvious that that things were going in the right direction and are continuing to going in the right direction but i think the questions that are being asked in the long term uh, you know with this 29 billion dollars investment this year in the rail network how much of that is going on safety and how much of that is going on new lines rolling out these high speed intercity van de Barrack trains that have had a lot of publicity and i think that's the legacy of the crash that more money needs to be pulled into the day-to-day running of the system you know we've seen several reports come out since our freedom information requests that show there have been several near misses this year where trains were sent onto the wrong tracks and narrowly missed others you know some because the drivers say that they had to act you know kind of very quickly to avoid a crash so, so it is. It is evident that there are there are safety issues within the system. You know, some short staffing seems to be a problem. That the Hindu reports in January, there's around three hundred thousand positions open um, that needs to be filled. So, you know, if India's rail network is going to expand as planned, it, it will need you know a vast number of employees as well to ensure that the system is safe. And I think the crash in Adisha has shown that that things are quite perfect
1: or, or certainly are perfect at the moment. I've been looking at some of the stats that came out, and I think what makes understanding these. Um, these incidents in the broader context a little more difficult is that um, you know the Indian Railway always had a lot of structural problems it always had problems with like safety it always had problems with staffing Um, you know it got understaffing then it had problems with a wage bill that didn't allow it to invest in increased capital outlay which is basically increased tracks increased um, you know amenities stations etc. I was looking at um, you know how many people die on the the Mumbai Suburban Railway every year? Uh, 10,000 people a year, uh, maybe a bit less than that. Couple, of, couple of thousand people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> ten thousand would be a bit, a bit of a massacre, wouldn't it? I think it's probably quite high. Yeah, yeah. It's a uh, two thousand five hundred people a year, which is like eight people a day in Bombay, wow. like the richest city in India. What was interesting for me was that you, you know you've heard of this whole Kavach scheme, right? This new safety um, mechanism that the railway minister Ashbini Vaishnaw has deployed. Yes,
0: there's been a lot of excitement about this this kavash uh, system. I think it was announced in 2019,
1: I, I believe. Yeah. Unfortunately, even if that system was in play in this uh, in the sector that the Orisha accident happened in, apparently it wouldn't have stopped the accident because it was a track uh, signaling issue that was a problem, right? Yes. So there has been a lot of criticism with regards to the, the kavash system, which has only which has only been deployed
0: on around two percent of the Israel run network to, to this date. Um, what the government has done is the deflected criticism of the crash. Uh, I, I think very swiftly. There's an investigation ongoing from India's Central Bureau of Investigation, uh, and fingers seem to be being pointed at individual, uh, an individual or an unnamed group of individuals. You know, the indication was that this is a human error. This isn't a problem. This wasn't a problem from a lack of infrastructure or a lack of safety. Uh, you know, we, we've seen this. We've seen this before with with other similar. I think events in in india you know with the bridge collapse in gujarat last october november again that was blamed on individuals rather than en- endemic structural corruption you know again with covid I, th- I think given the number of deaths that we saw in india it, it was remarkable that, that prime minister Modi came out of that more popular than ever um but again i think the government did a very good job of of, of painting these crises as, as, as sort of supernatural or or external events that the government simply has no control over and I think that's what we've seen again in the in the the aftermath of the train crash in Odisha, that, that this is being pinned on you know a rogue rogue elements or a rogue group of people uh, and there's nothing that the government could have done. I think as well the fact that it's going to take I think a minimum of 180 days for the CBI's investigations to be made public. By then, you know, the news cycle will have moved on so far uh, that it's unlikely that I think that you know the findings of that investigation are, are held too much to account. And what I can say is that. The incident certainly hasn't dampened, uh, you know, public demand for for rail travel. Um, you know, the IR the, the the ticketing platform IRCTC. So there's been no impact in the days that followed the crash when it came to rail bookings. And I think if you look now, you know, if, if I go and try to book a train from Mumbai to Delhi, for example, I'd struggle to do so for the next five or six weeks. So there's certainly, I think, public confidence hasn't, or perhaps public necessity in travel certainly hasn't dipped since the crash. And also, the other major story, I think, breaking from South Asia this week, was the long-awaited Pakistan budget. Uh, The country's on the brink of default negotiations continue with the IMF, and there were high hopes the budget might lead to some kind of long-term structural reform. But what we've seen presented is essentially a a populist budget by the incumbent government with its eyes on the autumn general election, rather than one that's going to bring about this long-term change. There's been no tax reform, uh, which is one of the terms the IMF was, was calling out for. Uh, no major industrial reform either, but we've seen hikes to to government salaries, hikes to minimum wage in Pakistan, and an even greater fiscal budget this year. Now, Pakistan's economy, when you look at the budget, around 97% of tax collection this year is going to go on on meeting external payments. So Islamabad is, is planning to borrow yet another further $25 billion over the next year, simply to keep the country running. But it can't keep borrowing and borrowing. You know, allies like the Saudi Arabia's of this world, China, the UAE, you know, they're getting to a point where they're saying enough is enough that they can't keep matching Pakistan's requirements. So I think following that general election in the autumn, there is going to have to likely be a new budget, um, a completely fresh budget made by whoever comes into power with an eye on the next five years because
1: reform is necessary for, for the country's economic survival. So a couple of things, it's interesting because from what I've been reading about Pakistani finance minister, Shakhtar, is that he is a bit of a Navashari, Farshabashari party loyalist. He understands, you know, how to handle the party, but he's not really an accomplished economist to say uh, say the way Mifta Ismail is, you know, so he's been attracting some sort of black for that. The other story that got me really interested was the story that Pakistan received their first delivery of Russian oil. It's not significant as compared to, let's say, how much India imports. I think we get somewhere like 30% of our oil requirements right now met by Russian crude. But what's interesting is how they paid for that oil, which is through B. Even though a lot of their debt is still in dollars and they're going to have to figure out a way to handle that, the fact that Pakistan is now using the Yuan in order to buy Russian oil, it could be like a template for other countries that you know are under sanctions or closer to China. You know, and so you see this area of China, um, Russia, uh, Pakistan, and perhaps even Iran, you know, that might create the foundation for like an alternative to the dollar-based or or the dollar-dominated, you know, in national trade system. So that was really interesting for me, I mean, as we're looking at the old Modi story.
0: So for this week's episode, we're focusing on a story which is set to dominate headlines, India's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, will arrive in Washington DC on Wednesday for a four-day state visit, the first time an Indian leader has been granted this honour since Manmohan Singh in 2009, when he was invited by then US President Barack Obama. Now, during this jam-packed visit, Mr Modi will address a joint session of the US Congress for the second time, becoming only the first Indian leader to do so. He'll have a state dinner hosted by US President Joe Biden and his wife, Jill, meet with the U.S. State Department, and he's still finding time to lead celebrations at International Yoga
1: Day. So this is a hotly anticipated visit. President Biden himself has joked that everyone in the whole country wants to meet Modi, and he's not wrong. U.S.-India relations are seemingly at an all-time high, united by shared strategic goals in the Indo-Pacific, including, of course, stemming the rise of China. While the visit is also set to announce a number of new defense and manufacturing deals, which would mark the most significant agreement between the two countries since the 2007 India-US civil nuclear agreement. You know, it's no wonder that The Economist's lead story is a picture of Joe Biden hugging a tiger with the title America's New Best Friend. But what really is the significance of this visit? Is it just an orchestrated photo op by Prime Minister Modi looking for a political boost to his home constituents? Or is it a genuinely paradigm-shifting visit that might change the trajectory of India-US relations for the next decades to come? Stay tuned. It's a pleasure to be joined this week by Dr. Rajeshwari Pillai Rajgopalan, the director of the Center for Security, Strategy, and Technology at the Observer Research Foundation, one of India's leading think tanks.
0: In a glittering career, Dr. Rajagopalan was the technical advisor to the United Nations group of governmental experts on the prevention of arms race in outer space and the non-resident Indo-Pacific fellow at the Perth U.S.-Asia Center. In between these achievements, uh, Raji finds time to write a weekly column for The Diplomat on Asian strategic issues and has authored a cool nine books. Well, welcome to the podcast, Raji. How, how are you today?
2: Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Uh, I'm good. Uh, yeah, the visit is an exciting uh, sort of a phase. Um, so there's a lot of things ex- uh, uh, to talk about and to, to unpack in a sense in this podcast, I think. Thank you.
1: So, Dr. Rajkopalan um, I wonder if you could help contextualize how far India-U.S. relations have come. Because although they seem to be going strong right now, you know, with both countries having uh, increased strategic and defense cooperation through both Republican and Democratic presidencies, this wasn't really the case for most of India's independent history, was it? You know, the two countries found themselves in opposing sides of the Cold War. And as recently as 1998, President Clinton didn't hesitate to impose sanctions on India following his nuclear tests. So I'm, yes. I'm curious to understand when and how did that change? And in particular, who are the figures that helped transform the U.S.-India relationship from the Cold War, occurring to the sort of bonhomie that it's uh, experiencing today?
2: Yeah, that's a terrific question to look at because uh, when you look at uh, India-U.S. relations, they have not always been the best. But I would also add that they were not uniformly bad either, including during the Cold War years. Uh, and I think uh, the U.S., for instance, came to India's help during the 1962 uh, Sino-Indian border war. And I think that's a remarkable um, uh, episode in India-U.S. relations that were otherwise uh, fraught with a lot of problems during the Cold War years. And of course, India was the largest recipient of the U.S. foreign aid during the uh, throughout the Cold War period. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of positive things, a lot of uh, good things have happened during the uh, during the Cold War years, but that that history is often forgotten. Then of course the relations hit a low uh, in the early 1970s with the Bangladesh war for instance and the U.S support for Pakistan uh, that really brought the uh, U.S India relations to an all-time low. But the U.S.-India relations began to sort of a pick up, uh, began to improve by the 1980s. Uh, then again, of course, uh, the next major um, sort of a milestone uh, in terms of uh, looking at the relationship from a negative aspect is the when President Clinton uh, did impose sanctions on India following the 1998 nuclear test. But again, these were remote fairly quickly and there were also a certain amount of effort on both sides to understand each other, uh, uh, to understand each other, too, and, uh, to listen to each other What what is kind of driving these issues in a sense. Uh, and I think that led to the, for the first time, at least for India, to engage in a strategic dialogue. So these dropped Albert Jasmine Singh, the um, uh, strategic dialogue that had 14 rounds of strategic dialogue that happened led to significant improvement of the ties, culminating with President Clinton's uh, visit to India in March 2000. So, And then, of course, from then onwards, it's been further opening up happened, the signing of the next steps in strategic partnership initiative happened uh, with the two countries wanting to kind of explore, um, agreeing to expand cooperation in three specific areas. They were looking at civil nuclear activities, uh, civilian space program, uh, and high technology trade. Uh, They also agreed to expand their dialogue on missile defense. And I would say further, uh, the uh, subsequent governments have kept up with this momentum. So I would say the watch by Clinton governments laid the framework for the bilateral relationship and the subsequent governments have taken forward this momentum since then. Uh, Bush administration had a big role to play in this, uh, in the transformation that we have seen in U.S.-India relations, both the Bush administration and the Manmohan Singh government in India. Ah, uh, the signing of this U.S.-India nuclear deal. Uh, one moment, Singh government did face some difficulties because of the coalition government, but for that matter, even the BJP tried to oppose the nuclear deal. But this had more to do with the domestic politics than any questions about the relationship with the U.S. I think um, since the uh, since at least uh, uh, President Clinton, I would say there has been a sort of a keen interest in building up its, India's relations with the U.S. That's been a priority. So in that sense, now the Modi government has kept up with that strong support for relations with the U.S. Um, He has kept up with that momentum that we have seen so far. So I'm not sure that I can put uh, uh you know, take up some uh, individuals who were particularly key. But if I have to, I would say watch by Clinton, uh, the two uh, governments in the U.S. and uh, in India, they really uh, made the difference in terms of laying out the framework for the kind of relationship that we have seen. Uh, between India and the U.S.
1: And, you know, that's really interesting because to my mind, it was always the the Bushman Mohan Singh sort of nuclear deal where that relationship really jumped out to me. I mean, that was something I grew up with. Uh, it's interesting that it was a BJP government again, uh, that of Vajpayee and his foreign minister, Jaswant Singh, that sort of really took that step forward after the uh, sanctions uh, were applied. Uh, it does seem that Mr. Modi now is taking another key step forward um, with India-U.S. relationships more than previous governments have, let's say.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, there, there is. Uh, I think the relationship with the U.S. is a key priority area for uh, both the international po- politics perspective from as, so as well as from a domestic politics perspective. And I think there are also the structural reasons, in a sense, structural conditions that have been created. Uh, the kind of uh, balance of power uh, politics that we see both in the Indo-Pacific and beyond i think it again your structural conditions are uh, pushing india to do what is a pragmatic review of india's foreign partners who are those security partners who can actually help india with india's challenging challenges and so on and so forth so in that sense when you look at it modi is keeping up with that strong support that we have seen from uh, early 2000 onwards and uh, clearly the structural conditions the changing balance of power equations uh, in India, uh, in, the, in the Indo-Pacific and beyond are actually providing additional uh, imperatives for the Modi government to take that relationship forward in a sense.
0: so We've mentioned uh, Manmohan Singh a, a couple of times so far on the podcast, but the last state visit from an Indian prime minister uh, to the U.S. Was, was Manmohan Singh himself in 2009. Now, my sources tell me that, that Mr Modi has been pushing for quite some time uh, for a state visit, uh, as you mentioned, given these warming relations between India and the U.S. I mean, how important has this been uh, to the, or how important is this for the Modi government to have the state visits to the U.S.? And how has Mr. Modi contributed to these improving relations?
2: No, good relationship with the U.S. is a high priority. Again, like I said, both from uh, from a foreign policy perspective, uh, as well as from a domestic policy, uh, pol- politics perspective, being partners with the most powerful country in the world, is also seen as a sign of successful Indian foreign policy. So definitely important for Modi to show that he has a, a very strong partnership with the uh, with the United States. Uh, contributions by Modi specifically, I would say, it's more or less the same as the previous prime ministers. But of course, Modi has built on what others have done. Um, but I wouldn't say there is anything dramatic. There's nothing dramatic about uh, about what modi has done but a lot of continuity from uh what others have done so far so steady progress but there is no dramatic change in the indian foreign policy uh modi has built on the same directions built on the relationship in the same manner and other that others have done before him so i would say a lot of continuity that we see but again uh, i think the structural changes in international politics at this point of time has given a lot of visibility to what india is doing so the visibility aspect is something that we are seeing a lot more uh, than any big departure in terms of India's foreign policy, India's approach to the United States and so on and so forth. So it's a lot of continuity, but there is also a necessity uh, of the times driven by the China factor. The China dimension in India-US relations cannot be ignored. Uh, to um, to build that closer strategic partnership with the US has become a key priority for India because of the uh, because of the China factor.
0: It's it's interesting you mentioned the the China factor there because I think that this is really key when we we come to looking at contemporary relations between Delhi Delhi and Washington. What what are, what are the two countries most keen to collaborate on? I mean, we talk about China, but what other areas of interest do, do they cross over on?
2: No, I think China is the most critical factor when you look at the uh, when you look at uh, the India US relations because. Uh, uh, it's not that U.S.-India new, uh, relationship, you know, they have been strengthening over a period of time. But it, even in the U.S.-India nuclear deal, it's not that the U.S. suddenly recognized there is a need for clean energy and so on and so forth. I think they had the, the strategic factors um, uh, pushing the Bush administration also to look at how can we build, how we, one can build, how the U.S. can build stronger relationship with the U.S. came from the fact that there is a big China factor that needs to be addressed. And for that, Uh, It is better to India have on the U.S. side than otherwise. India might play a neutral player otherwise, like the non-alignment sort of movement of India. And that is something that I think they clearly wanted to avoid. But I think the China-driven questions are at this front and center of the India-U.S. relationship. They might develop a lot of other aspects to the relationship, but it is in terms of uh, developing closer defense um, ties. And I think that also comes from the rupture factor. Um, that's other big factor that has been on and off in terms of sometimes it has created a bit of tension uh, in the relationship, uh, but it does not really damage the relationship. Uh, for instance, when India decided to buy the S-400 air defense systems from Russia, uh, how would that impact on the India-U.S. relations if the U.S. were to impose, for instance, the KATSA sanctions? So there were a lot of questions, doubts about how things might unfold in that way. But there was also the huge uh, constituency, significant uh, constituency in Washington, uh, D.C. also that uh, talked about, you know, the uh, fr- uh, the fragility of the relationship. I've, and if India, the U.S. were to impose sanctions on India, the CAATSA sanctions on India, I think India is going to be in some sense lost uh, because India will not come back to. Um, there has always been the question of the U.S. how credible is the U.S. as a security partner and kind of thing. And if the U.S. were to impose sanctions, then that would be a huge setback for the relationship. So I think Uh, the uh, different administrations, the Trump administration and of course the Biden administration, the different administrations have seen how fragile the relationship is at one level. It's very strong, but at the same time, it's also fragile because of some of the uh, factors like uh, Russia. And I think many of the uh, strategic analysts in both uh, US and India have written about the fact that, for instance, if India has to be able to reduce the dependency on Russia, then there has to be Western supplies of defense technologies to India, because otherwise, where does India go to? Um, and uh, so I think there has been that political recognition on the part of the US to some extent, I would say, uh, in recognizing that unless India, uh, unless the US or other Western partners are able to meet India's uh, defense requirements in the, uh, giving technology, uh, engaging in technology transfer and so on and so forth, uh, India will continue to have that rela- relationship with Russia. So if the Russia uh, relationship, the Russia factor has to come down in overall India's dependency on the defense sector. It is the responsibility, also in some sense, uh, of the West, uh, especially the U.S. or other European powers, to uh, step up their cooperation with India so that India's dependency on Russia can be minimized. So, therefore, strengthening U.S.-India defense cooperation uh, has become uh, part of the has become an important aspect of the U.S.-India evol- uh, evolving relationship.
0: Absolutely, I think it's we've had a lot of conversations this week um, regarding the announcements that have been coming out of the US in the lead up to the visit. So we're looking like a, a collaboration when it comes to aircraft engines uh, through General Electric, Predator drone sales possibly coming from from the US to, to India. We've seen Germany and India in, in discussions over submarine sales right. that seems to be motion in place for, for sort of more support from the West when it comes to military hardware. I, I believe last year uh, France actually overtook Russia as India's number one. Um, Right. A sort of matter for the for the first time in some some years. So as you yeah. say, that, that process is, is very much, very much underway. No, I
2: think there's there has been conscious effort on the part of India also over the last decade, uh, slightly more than a decade, to diversify India's different trade partners. So India has been making that effort for a while now. But again, given the kind of dependency on Soviet Union first and now Russia for something like for several decades. Uh, there are uh, legacy systems that India continues to buy from the uh, from Russia, and uh, it's not easy to kind of wean away from Russia uh, overnight. Um, so it is taking time. So I think the uh, when you look at the next decade, uh, India's most procurements are coming from non-Russian sources. That's something that I've heard and seen in various um, uh, various close to close to conversations. So there is a conscious decision by India in the past decade to move away, or at least reduce the dependency on Russia. That uh, the dependency single on a dependency on a single source, Russia, has been a problem. And now with the Russia-China relationship growing ever stronger, I think India has to make some very uh, difficult choices in terms of moving away from Russia. Provided um, uh, some bit of technology transfer happened uh, in, in the earlier decades. Second, I think it was relatively cheaper. I think that's another big consideration as to why India continued to buy uh, the Russian, uh, the Soviet, and Russian systems because they were also cheaper, Uh, and because given the overall defense budget allocation of India, uh, the cost factor is always an important consideration, and therefore India did look at Russia as a feasible option in in many ways. But I think, given the kind of Russia-China interactions that are happening, I think that is going to be an aspect uh, because of which uh, now um, a sort of a India will need to speed up or accelerate the process of uh, defense trade diversification.
1: So, Raji, it's interesting uh, when we talk about the defense cooperation aspect of it. But I guess my question is where else? Apart from defense uh, cooperation, do you see the India-US relationship going in the next, say, uh, decade or 20 years? Uh, Which avenues do you think is going to continue to strengthen? And, you know, you've spent some time in Taiwan, so I'm particularly interested in the economic side of this, you know, because the one single factor that helped the East Asian Tigers to industrialize, including China, was access to the US consumer market. And recently, it seems that the US is increasingly turning inwards. uh, So we may not necessarily, India may not have the China deal, so to speak. So where do you see this relationship going uh, on that broader framework over the next 10 or 20 years?
2: So the way I see it, I think the relationship over the next decade or two will, of course, continue to strengthen. um, uh, But it will depend on a couple of different factors because I I look at it primarily from a a security or strategic perspective, because I think that is the, um, you know, you may have trade and uh, economic, other investment opportunities and so on and so forth. But will that really sustain the kind of momentum that we are seeing? I'm not entirely sure. Um, I think it is the, it's the strategic security aspects that are driving the relationship with such kind of positivity. Uh, but again, it will depend, for instance, uh, on one, uh, because we have had very cold relationship in the past, uh, but never really adversely. So it depends on one of the depend- uh, one of the factors to look at is, for instance, how the China rel- relationship evolves in a sense in the, in the future. Uh, if China has peaked as of now and it is now in a in a in a sort of a declining uh, um, sort of a trend, both India and US will need each other less than what we see now. Because, but if China continues to grow, continues to be this hegemonic power with aggressive um, sort of a posturing, um, use of with somebody who uses force a lot, a, around, against all of all of its neighbors and others, then I think that you are looking at a looking at a condition where both the US and India will need each other we'll need to work with each other much more than ever before and uh, also in terms of the kind of uh, what kind of uh, international system are we looking at are we looking at a bipolar global system that is emerging um uh, and uh, china as a pole is not going to be an option for india so again the us india relationship could become uh, much stronger as we go forward so i think there is a lot that is going to weigh on the china factor if china were to become for instance a much more benign accommodative power how would the india-us relationship look like even at this point of time forget about 20 years from now but at this point of time if china were to become a more accommodative power uh, being accommodative about india's security concerns india's sensitivities and kind of things how would that relation i'll tell you i just to give you an example in doklam for instance doklam the conflict happened between um uh, india china and bhutan at uh, the transaction junction of the uh that particular region uh in 2017 Uh, The conflict lasted for about 71 days. Finally, there was a disengagement of forces that happened after 71 days. Um, Thereafter, the two sides went to do um, sort of a high-level negoti, high-level discussions, uh, what were called the informal summits. Um, So two informal summits happened, one in Wuhan, and a second time President Xi came to India uh, for another summit. Many in India wanted to believe that the Doklam conflict was more of an aberration and that it was not something that China was really... Calculatively, uh, uh, doing it against India in a sense, that conflict was not a con- It's it was not planned, but it was more of an accident, more of an aberration in a sense. That's what the Indian establishment wanted to believe. Uh, even when the informal summits happened post Doklam, uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, sort of a, a narrative that was being created in India to say that there is this is a sort of a giving way to a reset in the relationship and so on and so forth. But some of us who were, I, I, I certainly have been spect- respect respect skeptic even at that point of time uh and i have written several articles even during those years to say that this is the kind of china that one should be prepared to deal with the Doklam club was not going to be the, just the last one this is just the beginning of the china that you're aggressive china that you're going to see and therefore you will have many more Doklams. clubs i wish i were wrong about it but three years later you had the 2020 galwan conflict so uh and during those uh, uh 2 3 years in between post Doklam, when the the informal summits were happening india for instance was already engaged in the quad 2.0 but we went, we wouldn't even call it by the quad by the name we would say this uh, you know complicated um, uh, sort of a name uh, saying that us india australia japan grouping met we wouldn't even call it by the name of quad because we were so sensitive to how China would look at that uh, and so on and so forth. So we did everything to make sure that ensure that China did not uh, China relationship did not get affected negatively and so on and so forth. So if China were to become slightly more of an accommodative power and be sensitive to India's concerns, India's sensitivities, sensibilities, I think, you know, a lot could change. But I think the Galwan conflict surely has done a lot of damage to the relationship. So to me, a lot of the uh, much of the uh, much of how I look at the U.S.-India relationship in the coming decade or next two decades, I think it's going to uh, it's going to depend a lot on the China factor and how the how the world might look like and that. So if China were to become, uh, which in my view is going to be the case, China will continue with its aggressive posturing, the belligerent mode, and we might end up with a bipolar situation. And in that situation, in that scenario, unlike in the past Cold War, India does not have the option of playing one against the other. India cannot really be partnering with China, uh, being an immediate neighbor. But at the same time, with a neighbor with whom there's a huge historical baggage, with whom there, is, there are undersolved border and territorial issues, India really cannot be partnering with, with uh, China. Um, so the option for India remains then, it is the U.S., that is the U.S. and U.S. allies, U.S. partners that are going to continue to remain India's new security partners also. Um, so in the coming two decades, I think the uh, much of the relationship is going to be driven by the China factor. But I think in terms of the avenues of cooperation, I would look at, for instance, defense and in security arena, uh, critical and emerging technologies. These are the major areas that will uh, see uh, uh, major progress in the coming years. But of course, we will continue to look at some of the other aspects because India is also trying to be the, uh, what do you call it, uh, sort of a uh, leader uh, of the global south, providing a voice to the global south. So India will continue to raise issues such as developmental issues, climate change related issues and how some of the many island countries are going to be affected. So India will want to champion the cause of the global south and so on and so forth. So we might take up those issues, but I think that primarily the relationship is going to be driven by the. Security, strategic, and defence,
0: um, uh, areas, in a sense. Uh, yes, I, I think the the areas for cooperation uh, are, are going to be numerous. Um, I mean, we look at announcements over the last couple of weeks. We've seen the US that it will send uh, kind of experts to India to to help start or or to kind of encourage or grow this, this semiconductor industry, which I think is quite exciting for for India. You know, we've seen Tesla in talks to open a factory in Gujarat. Apple and Amazon in the country over the last week or two, there seems to be huge uh, kind of business interest in, in India at the moment, for sure, in in the U.S. Yes. I mean, how significant are these recent deals? And do you think we can expect to see more in, in the future, as you say, kind of across defense, manufacturing, when it comes to things like AI, uh, there's a huge amount of, I think, cooperation between the two countries?
2: There are enormous possibilities. These are all possibilities that uh, that will possibly unfold in the coming years but I, we wouldn't know until this happened because many of these have been in the works for many, many years. Um, so in some sense, I'm a little bit of a skeptic. Um, so we'll need to wait and watch. Uh, not because there is no interest on either side. There is a lot of interest on both sides, especially uh, looking at the semiconductor issue or looking at the supply chain resilience uh, um, issues, um, our AI and other critical technologies, drawn, a whole range of issues. There's a lot of interest in India as well as in the US to kind of partner with the US, uh, partner with India. But again, India does it provide the same kind of incentive as China did 20 years ago, 30 years ago, provided the best incentive for the for the world to come make investment there, manufacture things, and so on and so forth. Is India doing that? Even two uh, two years ago, three years ago, when we talked about companies, uh, factories moving out of China uh, and India was offered an enormous opportunity. There was a a major opening up for India. India could have cashed in on that, but India did not really gain much from that. Most of the Southeast Asian countries like Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, these are the countries that are actually benefiting. They are providing the best incentive for uh, the rest of the world to come and set up their shops, set up their factories, and so on and so forth so india has issues still that need to be resolved uh, whether it is in terms of the investment climate whether it is in terms of the manufacturing climate whether it is in terms of providing uh, appropriate uh, uh, adequate appropriate uh, infrastructure uh, continued water supply continued power supply and land acquisition all of these are issues that india still need to resolve so um, there is a lot of possibilities i but i am not counting the chicken as it. i am going to do a bit of wait and watch. Because even when you look at some of the political issues, with India, everything takes time. We took about 10 years to sign some of the different foundational agreements with the U.S. I know there is a huge amount of history. There are We have difficult, different histories, different um, contexts that we have come through and so on and so forth. So signing on to some, some of the different foundational agreements were not going to be easy. There's a lot of uh, what if and so on and so forth when India signs something with the U.S. Uh, So it did take some time. But the fact is that that's a reality that you're dealing with. With India, everything is going to take time. Um, So how soon we signed a semiconductor agreement uh, recently. But uh, there was a question. Somebody was talking to one of the uh, U.S. bureaucrats about this. And the response was, yes, we haven't even really come to thinking about what is that we are talking about. We don't have. We haven't even developed that common shared understanding of what is that. What we want to do. So I think there is interest, of course, and India is very very ambitious in wanting to partner with um, uh, with the US and with the rest of the major partners uh, on a on an array of technologies and so on and so forth. But again, how quickly is India able to do that? How what kind of an incentive structure is India creating in order to make these things a reality? I think that's something that I'm going to. I will say, I will wait and watch.
1: You know, we've spoken a lot about China, and it does seem apparent that this seems to be uh, the overriding factor that's pulling India and US into closer relations. But I do want to talk about the so called bear in the room, and that's the uh, Russia relationship. You know, when the Ukraine war started, um, I remember the initial response from U.S. officials was uh, almost something of dismay, because I think they did expect a bit of a stronger reaction from India, given the growing U.S.-India friendship. And I I just wonder where that relationship is going. And do you think that this state visit and the increasing closeness between, uh, you know, the U.S. and India uh, would lead to an increasing decoupling uh, with Russia, particularly in the area of defense?
2: so decoupling with russia i would say it's already on the way because uh, and not necessarily because of the u.s india relationship or the uh ukraine conflict and uh a ukraine conflict of course yeah the u.s india uh, the u.s partners and many other many other india's new security partners the u.s uh, uh, japan uh, australia and several other countries were in you know, some stunned by the indian response uh because they do they did expect india to get on board when there's a uh, when the Ukraine is a fellow member UN country and that country's territorial integrity sovereignty has been violated. It's as simple as that. And how is that India was not going to be going to get on board with uh, a resolution when it came up to the uh, UN? Um, So that was kind of uh, because I think these are the issues. These are principles that have remained important, critically important for India, given the kind of neighborhood that we live in given the kind of neighbors that we have with the two neighbors, South Pakistan and China, and with both of whom we have continuing sovereignty and territorial integrity related issues. So it must have been fairly shocking to a lot of India's new security partners as to how um, India did not really come up with a stronger response. Uh, one aspect about India's response in that uh, the, in, in the, in the Russian invasion of Ukraine is that one, India does not generally call out countries by name, that... If, if you look, go back and look in the UN uh, documents, UN um, sort of uh, Security Council resolutions and kind of thing, we usually don't call out countries by name. So that's an Indian practice. Again, I'm not defending that, but that's the Indian practice in a sense. Um, so one, we don't call it. Second, I think the second factor that India was very concerned about is, of course, our uh, uh, defense uh, dependency on, in, on Russia. Um, uh, that is something to the tune of 70 to 80%. That's a really large uh, proportion of the Indian defense inventory that you're talking about. 70 to 80% of Russian component in Indian defense inventory, that puts a lot of pressure. And especially at a time when India is still in an active life conflict with China on the border, India is too um, sort of a wary of what if India took a Stronger response on uh, made a stronger response on on the Russian invasion or called out Russia by name, if Russia were to stop the supplies of certain defense platforms or what Russia were to um, sort of stop the maintenance of some of the platforms or does not do the repair and so on and so forth, so they or or does not supply spare parts and kind of thing. so a whole host of worries of concerns of that kind really did come into play, but my sense is that uh, my my counterpoint to that is you know Russia does not have too many friends at this point of time would Russia want to do, want to uh, uh, lose India as well in the process? And second, I think India should have its own confidence. India should deal with the Russia with a lot more self-confidence because we are the ones we are buying this uh, a huge amount of uh, uh, weaponry and different platforms from, from Russia. So we should have that kind of confidence to pull off something like this. But again, That's uh, Indian establishment does not really have the habit of calling out Russia by name. But the more other uh, important aspect is the the strategic sympathy that exists for Russia that started out for Soviet Union and then which continues even now that comes from a a lot of the historical background, uh, anti-imperialism, then, as the Cold War politics picked up, it became anti-West, anti-U.S. That also translated to, in a sense, pro-Soviet sympathies, strategic sympathies for the Soviet Union, and that has not really gone away. Even now, the strategic sympathy among the most larger public in the in the country, as well as within the among the political class within the Parliament, you can take a vote, and uh, we nobody would say that we can abandon the Russia relationship as yet. Um, So the strategic sympathy that exists for Russia is something significant, both at the larger uh, public level, but also at the political level. But I I believe India's relationship with Russia will change because of the China factor. That's going to be the determining factor uh, in the the change that we might see in the India-Russia relationship in the coming years. One, I think the Ukraine conflict, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, during this conflict, in, it is, it's come out quite clear that Russians, uh, Russian, Russia's weapon technology is not as good as they used to be. So that's number one, and uh, and therefore I think that's one sort of uh, one factor that is going to uh, be a natural reason for why the U.S. India, India Russia defense relationship will change. Second, the fact that China, the China factor, the China factor is going to be another important for the uh, for the change that might happen because Russia today is supplying much better, more advanced weapon platforms to China than to India. This was not the case for much of the history, but over the last decade, this equation has changed. And for Russia, China has become the uh, all important strategic partner, friend and so on and so forth. And to them. Uh, strengthening that China relationship has become the most important priority, uh, and if, for that, for that, if they have to sell the most important, most advanced technology to China, they will do that. So, to give you an example, after the last Ukraine crisis started in 2014, uh, Russian President Putin went to Beijing in 2014 summer. He signed two weapons deals. One was for the supply of advanced Kilo-class submarine. Second was for the a supply of Su-35 um, uh, uh, fighter jet. India buys the India has bought Su-30 MKI and we deployed on the Sino-Indian border. Now Russia has gone and given to China a more advanced platform, affecting the affecting the military balance between Russia, India, and China in a direct manner. Um, so I think these are the kind of realities. It is slowly sinking in, in India that there are material consequences. There are implications for India's national security calculations, the kind of actions that Russia is taking today vis-a-vis China, vis-a-vis India. It has material consequences. It has national security implications. So I think this is beginning to change. So uh, India-Russia relationship will change, but not necessarily because of the growing in U.S.-India ties, but more because of the China factor and how that has emerged as an important determining factor for India to kind of uh, review and change its defense uh, uh, trade uh, partnerships, in a sense.
1: You know, that's fascinating. And and to me, that recontextualizes the entire debate about, you know, India uh, needing to maintain relations with Russia because we want to, India wants to have an independent foreign policy. But the bigger question is, do we want to outsource our advanced defense manufacturing to a country that's effectively beholden to our greatest strategic rival, China? So that does really put that into question, yeah.
2: Absolutely. So that is something that is really, you know, I've been so puzzled. I'm like, how is that people sitting in the Ministry of External Affairs or Ministry of Defense not getting this? Somebody is supplying a better platform to my enemy. How can that that particular country be my partner? Today's the Russia relationship is a liability, strategic liability. Second, when you touched upon the strategy, uh, auto strategic autonomy, which is the mantra in the Indian foreign policy Um, narrative, Uh, there are two things actually. So one aspect is about uh, if anybody studies India, they would know that uh, India will not change the Russia policy at this point of time because India will not want to be seen as coming under pressure from the West, from the US or anybody else and therefore changing the policy. So India's policy towards Russia will change, but not at this point of time because we don't want to be seen as changing our policy towards Russia under pressure from somebody else. Second aspect is that one of the goals of Indian foreign policy is also to have good relations with all the major powers. And to India, it seems like Russia is still a is still a major major power, and with also China. We, despite the fact that we have one hundred fifty thousand troops on the border on both sides of the border put together, uh, we are still looking some semblance of normalcy in the relationship. So there is an active conflict. There are one hundred fifty thousand troops. Despite that india still looks for some semblance of now see the relationship with the with china some semblance of good relations with uh with russia continuing but so one of the that that's a, one of the key goals for india that we should have good relations with all the major powers uh to me that's a bad recipe because at the end of the day when you have a real conflict and when you want to look for who are your partners who are going to come to india's aid russia is certainly not the answer because india russia sorry China has become the number one national security threat for India. As uh, the late CDS, uh, Jan Rawat put it. Um, uh, put it. Uh, but the fact is that who are those countries? Which are those countries that are going to be helping me in managing the China problem? Is, is Russia going to be the answer? To me, that answer is very clear. Russia will not be on your side, on India's side, to manage the China problem. Is the U.S. going to be on your side? Yes. Is China, Russia, is Australia going to be on your side? Yes japan yes vietnam yes singapore possibly yes so there are i france yes so i need to look at which are my national security most important national security challenges and which are those security partners of mine who are going to be with me in managing the threat to me it seems like very crystal clear but the indian establishment does seem to have <laughs> uh, have a slightly different view uh in how they look at they believe that having those good relations with all the major players is going to be helpful in managing whichever security challenge that you're trying to deal with, in a sense.
1: So it's interesting because, you know, India might, uh, the defense establishment might have its blinders on uh, when it comes to uh, how much Russia is going to back us in the end. But Mm. perhaps I could raise a question as to to what extent the U.S. is going to do the same. Now, you're going to head to D.C. soon, and uh, it's already election seasons, uh, because in 2024, they're also going to have their presidential election. And uh, it's, you know, possibly President Biden is going to continue in which we'll probably see a continuation of uh, the trajectory that's going on right now. But there is a distinct possibility of, you know, a Republican successor, possibly uh, the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, or even amazingly Donald Trump, uh, who might come back. And, you know, uh, we've seen that this sort of India-U.S. relationship seems to have acquired a bipartisan energy, the same way that their policy in decoupling from China is also sort of bipartisan. But you also saw Trump make a lot of worrying noises about the U.S.'s role in the world and the extent to which it should play a role in national affairs, right? So where do you see, what changes do you anticipate if in case, uh, let's say, a figure like Trump came uh, to power um, in the next uh, presidential election?
2: So uh, with Trump, I think uh, there was a certain amount of improvement in the relationship. We did make some progress on the U.S.-India, uh, US-India relations, but Trump was also very mercurial. Uh, there was a certain mm-hmm. amount of unpredictability about the Trump in a sense. So what one day, India is the greatest country and uh, greatest democracy, greatest all of that, great, great, great. And the next day, uh, Trump was imposing, um, you know, slapping India with a lot of different uh, tariffs and so on and so forth. So there is, you know, you went from one end to the other within a span of days with, with the Trump administration, with, with President Trump. But the administration still did manage to make some progress. We did make some improvement, uh, uh, important changes during the uh, Trump administration. So even during the Trump administration, which generally has had uh, a lot of countries around, at least in the indo pacific were not entirely comfortable with the Trump administration, primarily because it's the unpredictability uh, an unpredictable nature of the U.S. administration. You are not you. You are not really able to say how the U.S. is going to play on this particular issue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that's something uh, that is when the Biden administration took our office. I think there was a big relief in the Indo-Pacific least among a lot of smaller countries in the Indo-Pacific, which felt that now the U.S. is back to a certain amount of predictability. We can talk about and we can we can see how the U.S. is going to deal with um, issue A, B, C, D, and so on and so forth. Um, so I think that's that's a, that's a generally kind of thing. But um, yeah, a possible uh, a Republican successor, we don't know. Uh, DeSantis, we don't know a lot other than a general opposition to international engagement. That's that's But that's more of a um, sort of isolationist is tend- tendencies and so on and so forth. But I think what the, what the candidates say during the campaign is one thing. And once they come into office, it's a very different reality that they need to uh, deal with. Um, So at this point of time, it is difficult to uh, say how things might look at. But like you said, uh, there is generally um, uh, there is certain amount of bipartisan consensus on both China and India. China is a threat and India is a partner. I think that's that that bit of bipartisan consensus uh, uh, does exist at this point of time. uh, And we have seen steady improvement in relationship irrespective of whether it is a democratic or Republican administration that is in office. Because of the strategic convergence, broad strategic convergence that we have seen over the past uh, two, close to two decades now. And also the structural changes that that are happening uh, in international politics that are uh, that are pushing for a closer relationship, irrespective of who is in office, irrespective of ideology, irrespective of any of the um, historical uh, issues and so on and so forth. So I would think uh, irrespective of who comes into office. There is likely to be a a lot of continuity uh, going forward because of the uh, structural changes that are happening, the balance of power politics that is happening. And therefore, even India is going to go into elections next year, but most likely it is going to be the BJP that is going to come back into power. But even if if a Congress government were to come come into power, I would not see a change in the approach as far as the U.S. relationship or Japan. Uh, the Quad, all of those uh, relations are concerned because uh, we did have at the end of the day, US-India nuclear deal was signed by a a Congress government on the Indian side. Um, So I think um, as far as the foreign policy issues are concerned and as far as the relationship with the US is concerned, there is a lot more continuity. It is a bipartisan consensus uh, that we have to build closer relationship with the US and the same exists in the case of the US as well, irrespective of who is in our face, I think the consensus that exists for both China and US, China has become a competitor, a threat, whereas India is a partner and with a partner that we need to continue developing closer partnership and uh, closer relationship.
1: No, absolutely. And you mentioned Mercurial. And I still remember that beautiful campaign ad that Trump put out in 2016 on Diwali in which he said, uh, quote, uh, I love India. I love the Hindus. And then he ended it by saying, Bar, Trump, Sarkar. Uh, which is quite presumptuous of him. But uh, I think you're right. There's one thing that we can... There's one thing we know about Trump is that he's probably not going to go soft on China. So I guess we could hold him to that expectation.
2: Exactly. So so I would say even, you know, without being an ally, India-US relationship has come a long way, has grown enormously thanks to the China factor. So the primary driver of the relationship, which is China, and that relationship has therefore continued to expand deep in, look at the number of areas that we partner with each other, whether it is in bilaterally or through multilateral groupings and so on and so forth, uh, the kind of military exercises that we do. So there is a lot that is going on. And I think that would continue to be the case. We are still wary of joint operations, joint military planning and so on and so forth. But I think that's a work in progress that will come hopefully um, sooner than later uh, with the kind of changes, structural, strategic challenges that we see in Asia.
1: So Jude, that was a fascinating interview. And I think one aspect of it we didn't really discuss is how uh, Mr. Modi is using this visit uh, in order to further his own domestic political aspirations. So the one thing that is interesting about Modi is that he is one of the few prime ministers to effectively use foreign policy as a political tool to shore up his own popularity. And I think that makes the timing of this visit quite interesting, particularly in the lead up to the 2024 elections.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it's, it's wonderful optics for, for Modi and the BJP, you know, following that election loss in Karnataka, Well, you know, a couple of questions were asked about the BJP's, uh, you know, election winning machine. And I think having Mr. Modi meeting Mr. Biden and being received so warmly in the US is going to cast a lot of those doubts away that amongst the electorate here, or the majority of the electorate here, that, that he is the man to take India uh, into the next
1: election uh, and to run the country for the next five years. I think, um, Talking about the geopolitical aspect of this, I was looking for historical examples because the post-World War II nato Warsaw Pact order is a bit of an aberration um, when it comes to historical international relations from a historical perspective, right? Because it's very rare that you find so many uh, major economies or countries, you know, bound together in a tight alliance like this. Most of the alliances tend to be very issue-based. Like, for instance, um, have you heard of the, the Concert of Europe, which was um, the order that was instituted after Napoleon's defeat? In eighteen fifteen? I haven't, mate, to be honest. You're 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 much more of a history buff than I am, but um come tell me. Yeah. so in that order basically you had your five great powers prussia austria russia france and britain who decided to maintain a balance of power where they all agreed that if any single country decided to destabilize that order by say attacking another power or to seize too much control the other power was to sort of unite and either declare war or impose sanctions on that country to deter it from you know being too ambitious And we saw that in the Crimean War, where you saw basically Britain, France and Austria, three countries that have historically not really been on friendly terms, you know, all decide to attack Russia because it was being too grabby in the Balkans, for instance. So I was thinking that this might be one of those things where the depth and strength of Indo-U.S. ties are going to be reflected by how aggressive China is with its international ambitions. And I, I do think that post Xi Jinping, if you saw a return of, let's say, the politics that were played by Hu Jintao, who was a lot more passive, was a lot more, let's say, committed to uh, stability in international order, I could see that the US India ties waning and waxing depending on how China behaves.
0: Now, the, the limits and the facets of this relationship are going to be tested in the years and decades to come. The extent of Indian support for the US and the Indo Pacific is something that at the moment is uh, open to debate. Um, While India is keen to safeguard its border with China along the line of actual control and maintain its dominance in the Indian Ocean, hypothetically, if China was to to go to war over Taiwan, including the United States, where would India India stand there? There are a lot of unanswered questions despite the warming of this relationship.
1: Yeah, only time will tell uh, in what direction this relationship is going to develop. And on that happy note, I think it's time to end the episode. So, thank you all so much for joining us on this week's episode of Beyond the Indus,
0: and uh, we we look forward to speaking to you again soon in a fortnight's time.